They were proud to participate in the study. Yes, I will be a representative of Lashkari Taiba, you know, an Al-Qaeda associate uh, supporter. You can scan my brain, you know. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. Today in episode 58 of Parsing Science, we're joined by Nafis Hamid from Artis International and University College London. He'll discuss what he learned by measuring the brain activity of supporters of a radical Islamist group as they talked about their willingness to fight and die for their values, and whether they were more or less likely to do so if they believed that their peers did or didn't feel the same way. Here's Nafis Hamid. Hello, I'm Nafis Hamid. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Started off my career actually as a professional actor. Went to theater conservatory, was acting, doing various regional theater. Lucky, didn't need any side jobs, was kind of making a go of it. But of course, nothing nothing famous that I did uh, that your your listeners would be able to remember me from. And then I decided I wanted to go live in France for a little while, just because it was always a dream of mine to go live in Paris. So I, I went to Paris to go teach English for a year, again, thinking I, was, I would apply for grad school or something that year. My plan was to try to do a PhD in either UCLA or USC and then continue acting um, while doing the PhD. Now I look back at that and realize that was quite ambitious. But I get to Paris, fall in love with Paris, don't get into any of the PhD programs that I had applied for, happened to find out about this very interesting master's program they had in cognitive science called the Cogmaster. It's like very interdisciplinary, many different labs, many different universities. Uh, And so I applied and I got directly into the second year of their master's degree. So I was able to do it in one year. And then I decided to do my PhD in security and crime sciences at University College London. And uh, I'm just about to finish that PhD. Nafiz and his colleagues do research on the influence of sacred values on the decision-making of people who hold the kind of radical beliefs that are consistent with those of terrorist organizations. We began our conversation by asking Nafiz how he got interested in this line of research. So my undergrad, I would say the person who influenced me the most as a researcher was a woman named Patricia Churchland, who was a philosopher. She was to kind of helped develop this field called neurophilosophy and was looking at how things that we can discover in neuroscience and psychology might have some practical import in a variety of different philosophical topics, but moral psychology, moral philosophy was one of them. And then when I got to Paris and I was doing my master's degree, I worked with a guy named Hugo Mercier with Dan Sperber, another anthropologist, cognitive scientist, developed this thing called argumentative theory of reasoning, where they basically said evolutionarily, we developed reasoning to win arguments, essentially, not really to problem solve. And so I was then doing some research with him, mostly online experiments on, uh, a lot of people felt like moral reasoning is just post hoc, that people just use it to sort of justify their opinions and Even like good arguments don't change people's minds when it comes to moral issues. So we were looking to see if that's the case. And basically what we found is it's true that it's very difficult to change people's minds, even if you can address every single concern they have, if they have very strong moral commitments, if they have moral convictions. However, if they're kind of in the middle, if there's a gray area or if it's sort of a a weak conviction, then arguments actually do have purchase and they actually are able to persuade people. And so I kind of was interested in that extreme end of people's moral decision-making, that moral convictions. And there was a whole literature out there on uh, a a category of moral convictions called sacred values. 
And sacred values are, are like these ideas that we have that are considered protected. You know, they, we don't really even think about cost-benefit analysis with them. Some people say they're absolute. Other people just say that you can't mix them with profane or material values. You simply can't get this person to think about it in a, in a utilitarian fashion. Since people tend to be unwilling to trade off on their sacred values, no matter what the benefits of doing so may be, Doug and I were curious whether sacred values must also necessarily be religious in nature. We use the word sacred value, but I always try to remind people that even if you're an atheist, you probably have some sacred values as well. And people living in the West have sacred values. They don't need to be religious. For some people, freedom of speech can be a sacred value. I mean, take, for example, the, the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists, the guys who were killed by jihadists in January 2015 in Paris, who were drawing cartoons of Prophet Muhammad. Their, their offices had been bombed a few years earlier, but under the banner of freedom of speech, they said, we will not stop doing this, even though we know that we're getting death threats, and we know that they actually bombed our offices and, you know, maybe our time on this planet may be limited, but we are not going to stop because we just believe in freedom of speech so deeply. And of course, they were, you know, they were killed for it eventually. So I always tell people it's, it's, it's important that we not um, just assume that we're talking about religion here in particular. And when people feel like their sacred values are under threat, you know, they, they muster the will to fight for them. And in some cases, they're willing to give their lives and even the lives of their loved ones in defense of those sacred values. And not only do they, how, how many sacred values a person has or whether they have any sacred values may vary amongst uh, recruits into terrorist groups. But the thing that we do find is that people who are part of even a, a similar cohort of radicalized people, like, like in the study that we ran, there was quite a bit of variability in terms of the actual content of sacred values. Sometimes it's a, there's one or two issues that are pretty consistently sacred, like amongst our population, not doing cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad was a sacred value, I think, for every single person. Not allowing gay marriage was a sacred value for every single person. And then there were some issues that were pretty commonly not sacred values, like Islamic teaching in schools, for example, was in Spain was not a particularly sacred value for most people. But there was quite a bit of variation from person to person. Sacred values are, by definition, deeply held convictions for those that hold them. Nevertheless, people aren't born with them. Nafiz explains how sacred values develop and become such deeply seated convictions. So we don't really know from like adolescence into adulthood and so forth how much people change their sacred values in general. But it is true that sacred values are very difficult to change. Uh, once you once you really have a real proper sacred value, uh, I mean, the only thing that we can that, that we would guess from all of our other work that might lead to a change is if a person is put in a totally different social context and has a totally different sort of reference group, totally different friends who share completely different norms, different sacred values amongst them. And this person wants to gain access into that new reference group, which is exactly how radicalization itself happens. Most people who join groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda or even extreme right-wing groups, they weren't raised with those values. Most of them kind of are, are raised in probably the same similar values you and I have, which is generally they believe in, I mean, I'm talking about Western people here. They believe in liberal democracy. They probably believe in pluralism. A lot of them are raised in multicultural kind of communities. They generally got along with everyone. 
if you ask them probably at a young age, they believe in freedom of speech and you know equality before the law and free and fair elections and all of that. They would they would generally agree with all of that. Now, whether those values were sacred for them or not, I don't know. But that's generally sort of where their political uh, allegiances would would lay. But then it's through this process of usually one person seeding in a totally new set of values into usually a tight-knit network of friends, do they start changing their values. And initially, I mean, they don't just go from probably non-sacred to sacred. It's going to be a slow process, an incubation process of friends spending a lot of time with each other, watching videos, discussing, hanging out on soccer fields, hanging out in the gym, hanging out in parks. Sometimes the radicalization process from the period that they first hear about these radical ideas to the time they join, with ISIS, it happened pretty quickly. It would happen within like, sometimes it would happen just in a month to a few months. With Al-Qaeda back in the days, it would usually be a longer process. But again, it's questionable how much of their values become sacred. I would say that a person who really genuinely has sacred values, that is a highly radicalized individual. And it's going to be very difficult to de-radicalize that person. In the design of their project, Nafis and his colleagues didn't make use of a control or comparison group. Doug and I were interested in hearing what led the team to make this decision. One reason is that we didn't want to pathologize radicalization. A lot of people sort of think that radicals or people who join extremist groups or who support them are somehow just inherently different in terms of their psychology than normal people. But if that were true, we should expect behaviorally to see some evidence of that. And while if you look at a population level, you might be able to say, okay, there's more more people with psychopathic tendencies who may join terrorist organizations than what's then the base rate of the population. I think there was some studies that show that generally about 3% of the population are psychopaths, whereas in terrorist organizations, it can be as high as 9% or something. Okay, that, that, that may be the case. You may have, you know, it may be a disproportionate number of them, but it's still 9%. And, you know, it's 91%, if that's the case, then are not psychopaths. So we sort of knew that the general profile from all the field work, from all the, the case studies that have been done, the general profile of people who are radicalized sort of span the normal distribution of intelligence, of economic backgrounds, social backgrounds, uh, personality types. Even in this study, we also did a battery of a neuropsychiatric disorder tests. We had a clinician come in and measure them on a variety of different mental disorders. We looked at their IQs. We gave them personality inventories. They were normal. They were normal across the board. So if you, if you don't really have any basis to say that this person, extremists or supporters of extremist groups are, uh, are pathological in some way, then you really shouldn't be doing some sort of base rate neuroimaging study looking for differences in neural activation you know, between supporters of extremist groups and the general population. Recruiting subjects for any research project can be one of the most challenging aspects of the study. But recruiting supporters of a radical Islamist group in Barcelona, one which the USA, the European Union, and Russia have all designated as a terrorist organization, would seem nearly impossible. Ryan and I asked Nafiz just how he went about doing so. So it's almost embarrassing when now when I when I look back on how I was actually recruiting some of these people. I mean, the first thing I did, I get there in Barcelona, I, I have like some, I think it was like maybe an Al Qaeda video or something on my computer, and so I just open it up 
in a in a uh, in a cafe filled with like other Pakistani and Moroccan people and I'm Pakistani origin I'm Indian Pakistani origin myself so I kind of look like them as so I open up my computer and I just start watching one of these videos thinking well maybe if there's an extremist around me they'll kind of come and sit next to me and be like hey what you watching there man you know like uh, let's talk about that like I actually thought that that might work and of course didn't work. I'm sure they all thought I was a lunatic. Um, I'm surprised they didn't call the police on me. They probably should have. And so that was sort of, you know, the first failed attempt at trying to reach out to people. And uh, then I just started talking to, um, started talking to like, you know, taxi cab drivers or, 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 or people working in restaurants because they'd see me and they'd come up and they start, especially the Pakistanis, they'd start speaking to me in Urdu. Well, usually Punjabi and I don't speak Punjabi, but they speak to me in Urdu and I can get by in Urdu. It's not, it's not great, but it's enough that I can, I can talk to people. And so I would kind of talk back with them and then someone would introduce me to someone else or I would go to a mosque and talk to an imam. And sometimes I, there was a lot of undocumented workers selling beer, or cigarettes, or even weed on the streets. So I would just go and say, "Hey, can I just talk to you for a little bit?" And you know, most—I mean, it's kind of a mixture of Pakistani kind of, I guess you could say, working class culture that people generally like to hang out, like to talk. They're not so work oriented, but it's also that added into sort of the Spanish mentality of also the manana manana kind of attitude, where it's pretty easy to get someone to to stop working. <laughs> even and to just sit down and talk to you for a couple hours and then maybe just kind of get up once in a while and do their do what they do the minimal amount of work they need to do so it was a lot of that and people's perception you know, some people were very open and eager to talk to us other people were very suspicious of us i mean by the end i'm sure probably half the pakistani population in barcelona thinks i work for the cia or they think i work for uh isa the uh, the, the the pakistani uh, intelligence organization ISI, sorry. So yeah, that, that, those are kind of the uh, the experiences, and yeah, sometimes you know you'd meet people who you know who found the questions offensive, and they just couldn't believe that anybody would ever you know say yes, and because the questions were quite hardcore. I mean, for for some of the values, you know, we would be asking like check as many of these as apply for each value. So maybe the value could be armed jihad or expansion of a caliphate and you would say i would be willing to do nothing at all i'd be willing to talk to people one-on-one i'd be willing to peacefully protest i'd be willing to violently protest i'd be willing to financially support a uh, a militant group i would be willing to join a militant group i would carry out an attack on my own outside of a militant group uh for this value so those are pretty you know intense questions and some people would just look at us like we're crazy are you seriously asking me this question like who do you think i am and other people were like oh yeah totally absolutely i would join a militant group thanks for putting that option in there and so that was interesting yeah i mean to see sort of that variation to to really be able to see how the same survey for a kind of a non-radicalized person just seems like the craziest survey ever but for a radicalized person is like just completely tapping into all of their beliefs and values and they really appreciate that you worded the questions the way you did Nafis is also a research fellow with Artis International, a scientific research organization which focuses on the behavioral dynamics that affect conflict. Doug and I were curious to learn if it was there that he developed the skills necessary for engaging strangers in conversation about their radicalist beliefs, then potentially asking them to volunteer to go into an fMRI scanner while they answer questions about those values. 
Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, so this is when we started doing this research, this is right when I first started working for artists and I started working on this research. So I hadn't really developed my skills as an ethnographer yet. My problem was that I was too used to the laboratory. I was too used to very controlled conditions. And you got to make sure that, you know, you ask the, the same question in the exact same way every time. However, in the field, it's messy. What you really need to do is to be able to understand the conceptual basis of what you're doing, understand what these questions are supposed to be getting at, and then throw the measures out the window if you need to, um, and just kind of have a very normal conversation with someone and see if you can kind of guide them in a very normal conversational way into kind of you know, prodding and poking and figuring out sort of what their identity is, what their values are, what their threat perception is, what their grievances are. And that's kind of an art form that's that's difficult if you spend so much time studying sort of, you know, experimental psychology in the laboratory. You just you're 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 afraid of um of being too messy. Whereas in the, in the in the ethnographic phase of any study, I mean yes, by the end you want to develop a, a survey that will be asked where every question will be asked in the exact same way. But the only way you can create that survey is you got to first just talk to people in a normal way. So that way you can actually adjust all the questions in each of your inventories. So as soon as you ask it to the person, they get what you're saying without even thinking about it. And it makes immediate sense and it's intuitive. So the only way you can actually adapt a survey is to first go through this very long, messy process of just going out and talking to people in a way that they want to be talked to, in a way that they talk and figuring out what words they use and what their vernacular is. So that was that was one part that I was I had to, I had to kind of learn to do. While Spain has abolished the death penalty, if Nafiz's participants were to actually carry out the jihadist acts that they advocated, they almost certainly would be jailed for life. Or, depending on where their acts of terrorism were committed, they could be extradited to a country that does practice capital punishment. So Brian and I couldn't help but wonder why they agreed to participate in a study in the first place. I think there's a few different reasons for why they did it. I think first and foremost, people who do hold these kind of more extremist beliefs, they want to be understood. I've talked to members of terrorist organizations as well who are currently at the time members of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And I went to a, you know, another country and secretly met with them. And they had, they had read some of my research. And that's why they agreed to meet with me because they knew I wasn't a journalist. And they felt like the work I was doing was was fair. And so I think, first of all, people, when they, when they talk to you and they can see the questions on your survey, they see this is serious. These people actually genuinely want to understand who I am and what I believe. And they're not trying to do some gerrymandered study that's, you know, trying to make me look like a, a lunatic or something. I think the thing is most extremists feel that they have not been given a fair a fair depiction in the media. And so when they hear that someone's really going to do, you know, ethnographic interviews, survey studies, uh, social neuroscience experiment, they're like, holy crap, you really want to actually objectively understand us. And I think so that's, that's, that, that's particularly appealing. I think the neuroscience part was exciting and interesting for them too, because they would ask us questions like, wait, you want to scan our brains? Do you think there's something wrong with our brains? And we had to explain to them, no, we're not. We don't think it's pathological. We're going to do, you know, brain scan studies with other groups as well. We did another study with sort of younger, slightly 
radicalize Moroccans. We were going to do one on Catalan independentist as well. So we would kind of tell them overall about the, the, the overall project and the different populations we're working with. And they were like, they were kind of became curious. They kind of became a little nerdy, like scientists. You know, they were like, wait, so what part of the brains light up when this happens, when that happens? And, you know, and so I think there was sort of a seriousness that they responded to of the work. I think there was a curiosity themselves. I think they also somehow it made them feel important. You know, because if you're if you're a member of one of these groups and you're saying you're willing to do all these things and you have this propensity, but there's no avenue for you to actually participate in any of these activities, well, this becomes one way, sort of, of I guess, helping the cause, right? Because you're you're contributing to a scientific and better understanding of who these people are, essentially. Um, so I think that it gave them some sense of significance as well to be able to, they were proud to participate in the study. Yes, I will be your representative of Lashkari Taiba, you know, an Al-Qaeda associate uh, supporter. You can scan my brain, you know. Nafis and his colleagues concentrated their analysis on activity in several regions of the brain. We asked him to describe where these regions are located, as well as what makes them relevant to learning why people may have the will to fight for their sacred values. So the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is frontal cortex, so it's front, but it's on the side. And ventromedial prefrontal cortex is basically kind of in the middle, just you can think of it as sort of between your, the area between your eyebrows and a little bit higher than that, basically. So it's it's in the middle and the other one's sort of back into the sides. And so there's a lot of research that's been done in moral psychology on the relationship between ventromedial prefrontal cortex and dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. There's been work done on identities for the VMPFC and work on sort of subjective value computation for for VMPFC, whereas the DLPFC is sort of more executive decision-making. It's it's been involved in things like impulse control, self-control, executive functions, deliberative reasoning. So there's oftentimes when people look at sort of what they call dual process models of a variety of activities from moral decision-making to just general reasoning to um, even very mundane economic decisions about, do I want to eat that chocolate cake or do I not want to eat that chocolate cake? On the one hand, I want it, which might activate something like the VMPFC, it's subjective value, ah, that looks good. But now that's going to be a lot of calories and that's not good for my diet. And I said that I wouldn't do it. So you might get more activation in DLPFC there, because more deliberative reasoning. And so oftentimes in most of our ordinary decisions, you have both of these areas active. They kind of work in tandem together, VMPFC and DLPFC. So you have your, your wants and then it's kind of your wants are being regulated by these decision control mechanisms. And so sacred values are kind of interesting because they're very emotionally laden values and they seem to be very difficult to be able to negotiate or to reason with someone who holds a sacred value. And so we were kind of interested in, in, in looking at um, you know, what's going on in, in, in this part of the brain when it comes to this particular category of values. Of the 45 people that Nafiz and his colleagues recruited into the ethnographic study, 30 agreed to participate in the fMRI study. In it, the team recorded the brain activity of participants as they indicated their willingness to fight and die for their values, and as they reacted to their peers' ratings for the same values. Nafiz shares what he and his team found after this short break. If you are enjoying this podcast, you may also like Parsing Science's new project, Science Pods, the curated collection of episodes from other podcasts that are handpicked for people interested in science. You can explore new science shows that will inform your research, guide your career, or maybe make you laugh at the absurdities of scientific life. You can subscribe at sciencepods.com. That's science, P-O-D-S, dot com. 
Now, back to Parsing Science. Here again is Nafiz Hamid. We generally found that when people had a high willingness to fight and die for their values, regardless if it was sacred or non-sacred, there was a disconnect, suggesting that when people are really willing to fight and die for a value, the part of the brain, let's say, that's associated with deliberative reasoning is not regulating their decisions, essentially. However, when they had lower willingness to fight and die, then you saw the two areas of the brain kind of working in tandem again, like it does for most people for most decisions. So, okay, lower willingness to fight and die means that you kind of bring these two areas of the brain back in coordination together. Now, parts of the brain that are associated with deliberative reasoning is now working in tandem with parts of the brain that are associated with subjective value. Okay, now you have a person that can be talked to. Now you have a person that can be negotiated with. Now you have a person that can be persuaded. Now you have a person that's not just in a sort of close my eyes and act sort of mode, which is important for disengagement, de-radicalization, negotiation, and so forth. So the argument was, are these differences in activation that we're seeing the result of sort of more of an automated response. Things like, is, is it just that they're more familiar with it? Is it just that it's a more emotionally laden response? Is it just that it's more salient? They just, they just sort of are aware of the issue more, so they know exactly how they want to respond to it. So how do we know that that's not what's explaining the differences in their neural activation? And so that's why we actually went back to the participants and we had them fill out for each value, how familiar the issue was, how salient it was, and sort of how how emotionally intense it was. It was an inventory we had of emotions. I don't remember exactly what it was for each single issue. And then we were able to regress out um, emotional intensity, familiarity, and saliency, and yet we still saw the same activation difference. That means it couldn't be explained by any one of those other things. Those are not potential uh, confounds for the differences that we found there. It just sort of adds more evidence that the that the contrast that we found was the result of sacredness and not some other potentially confounding variable. In addition to using neuroimaging to monitor the brain activity of participants as they argued for their sacred values, the team was also interested in knowing if they could change those beliefs. So we asked Nafis to tell us how they tested the plausibility of doing so. So we know that people, um, they don't really change their opinion for their sacred values, the content of their sacred values. But maybe when it comes to their actions, their willingness to fight and die, that might conform. That might be a little bit more malleable. And so they had this scale where they were saying on a scale of one to seven, how much would they be willing to fight and die? You know, one being nothing, seven being, you know, martyrdom, basically fight and die, kill yourself, kill other people. But because they were radicalized people, they generally had pretty high willingness to fight and die. And so what we wanted to do in the experimental manipulation was then give them false consensus feedback where they see the value, they see the rating that they gave for that value, they press a button, and then they see the general Pakistani community in Barcelona's response to that value, which we made up, but we told them, we, we told them in the debrief that we made it up. And so what we wanted was one third of the time for it to be lower than what they said in terms of willingness to fight and die, one third of the time the same, one third of the time higher. But the thing is, because they were, they were so high in their willingness to fight and die to begin with, we were getting kind of ceiling effects in people's responses to willingness to fight and die that we just couldn't, we couldn't see whether they conformed, whether they were more willing to fight and die uh, if their peers were more willing to fight and die. So we really had to look at comparing when, when their peers said that they were as willing to fight and die versus when they had lower willingness to fight and die. And then they get out of the scanner and then we asked them to reevaluate their willingness to fight and die on each issue. And we saw that people conform. There, there, there was a decrease in willingness to fight and die 
when they receive that false consensus feedback about their peers being less willing to fight and die than they were. Um, so they did conform. And what was interesting was that conformity, that decrease in stated willingness to fight and die, was correlated with increased activity in the DLPFC, part of the brain that's generally decreased in activation during sacred value processing. So when they're sitting in the scanner and they're seeing their peers are saying that they're less willing to fight and die than they are, we're seeing more DLPFC activation in that area. If you learned that members of your community didn't endorse the same sacred values you did, you'd probably be pretty angry about it. You might even become more recalcitrant in your beliefs. And so, after completing the test in the scanner, Nafiz and his team were interested in learning if this was so for the study's participants as well. If your own community is saying that they're not as willing to fight and die for their values as you are, especially for your sacred values, one would predict that people are not going to be so happy about this. So when they got out of the scanner, we did have like a whole post-scan inventory where we were asking them. We had like a moral outrage scale that's been used a lot. It's a, it's a conglomerate of contempt, anger, and uh, disgust. And so we would show them, okay, so this is you know, the rating you gave for this value in terms of your willingness to fight and die. This is the rating the general population gave, again, made up. And we would kind of ask them, how does, how does it make you feel for each one of these things? Uh, so I, I knew that, yeah, people, when it came to, when people were less willing to fight and die for them, especially for the sacred values, they were going to be more morally outraged. And there probably wouldn't be at all when, when people agreed with them. And so, of course, we, we did find that people were outraged that people disagreed with them. And yet they still conformed nonetheless. So we did see this correlation, really, basically, when people were at a higher self-reported moral outrage. But the truth is, we don't really know exactly what that means. I think that's just going to be another question for research. Okay, so you have increased insula activation that's correlated with high moral outrage. And yet, despite the moral outrage, people still conform. They're angry that other people disagree with them about what they're saying, and yet they still lower their willingness to fight and die. Because one can imagine, for example, if you're thinking of this in practical terms, you realize, okay, so influencing people's perception of what their peers think might actually lower their tendency towards violence. But there's probably so many different ways in which you can deliver that message in person, online, through satire, through unconscious or conscious means. The question is, maybe some means might cause more moral outrage than other means. And what we're saying is that, well, however much moral outrage it may cause, people are still going to lower their willingness to fight and die. So you should still try to do that. But the question that I have is, if there is a way to avoid the moral outrage altogether, would that lead to a stronger effect size even? And I don't have the answer to that question yet. I think it's an area for future research. Doug and I found it striking that the people in this study were able to both be outraged that their peers disagreed with them, while simultaneously decreasing in their willingness to fight and die for their cause. We asked Nafis to discuss what he believes the implications of this finding are. I guess what also is so fascinating about the result is it shows you just how simple little minor changes in terms of the circuitry of the brain can lead to these huge behavioral differences. You just have this lowered activation in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, right? This sort of discorrelation that all of a sudden happens between these two areas of the brain that normally work in common. And you have the difference between a non-sacred value, a value you're willing to think about in, uh, in, in cost-benefit terms, a value you could negotiate and persuade someone with, a value you could probably even buy off 
You know, you can even actually get them to trade off this value for other values. So a set of values that makes this person a totally rational, reasonable person you can have a civilized conversation with, you can, you can mitigate conflict with, versus this one part of the brain deactivating and now all of a sudden you have sacred values and now this person is is just completely impenetrable in terms of being bought off, material incentives, cost-benefit analysis. This is now a devoted actor, a person who is just totally stubborn about these issues and is just not willing to budge on these issues at all. And now all of a sudden, you have potentially intractable conflict. That's, that's kind of fascinating to me. We wrapped up our conversation by asking Nafiz what application the team's findings may have on future policy or practice aimed at de-radicalization. You know, this can be actually used in a variety of ways in terms of policy implications for how you might try to disengage people from violence, from um, how you might use social media or counter-messaging. So counter-messaging is, is this tool that's, that's used, which is like you put up videos on YouTube or Facebook or whatever, and you try to get people to essentially change their beliefs or change their minds about what they're doing by trying to show them videos about how bad ISIS or Al-Qaeda is or how bad these extreme right-wing groups are. They say they're defending Muslims, but really they're killing Muslims. First of all, they're usually coming from totally uncredible sources, right? I mean, it's one thing to get a message from your friends or from a, from a violent anti-establishment group that you're kind of flirting with in terms of maybe your interest in them. It's a whole other thing to get a message from, you know, the French government saying these guys are bad. I mean, if you have anti-establishment you know, tendencies, a message from the establishment is probably not going to have much sway on your thinking. Um, but then on top of that, we see, okay, but you're trying to basically appeal, you're trying to get people to deliberate, but when it comes to their sacred values, this part of the brain is deactivated. So first of all, you probably shouldn't be even wasting your time trying to do that. But here's something you can do with messaging, change people's perception of what they think the social norms are. Make it very clear and targeted that in this local community, your peers, your friends, your family members, they don't agree with you. So you probably can do that with some sort of civil society organizations, local groups, putting up messages that amplify the voices in that community that, in fact, people do not endorse these values. That could change someone's perception of social norms, which could lower their overall propensity to fight and die for these values. But also, if you can even go offline, which would be even better, and if you are trying to disengage someone who maybe is down, going down a dangerous pathway, most of these people have lots of friends and family members who are not themselves at all radicalized. And the last thing they want is that their loved one to go off and kill themselves in Syria or even worse, kill themselves locally in a terrorist attack. You can recruit them. You know, it's, it's the friends who radicalize people, but it's also the non-radical friends who can, who can disengage them as well. Um, so it points to just, just how important community and friends and loved ones are when it comes to both the radicalization process as well as the de-radicalization disengagement process. That was Nafis Hamid discussing his article, Nero Imaging, Will to Fight for Sacred Values, an empirical case study with supporters of an Al-Qaeda associate, which he published along with 10 other researchers in the open access journal, Royal Society Open Science, on June 12, 2019. You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org e58. 
along with bonus audio and other materials we discussed during the episode. Reviewing Parsing Science on Apple Podcasts is a great way to help others discover our show. If you're up for doing so, head over to parsingscience.org review to learn how. Or if you have a comment or suggestion for future topics or guests, visit us at parsingscience.org suggest. You can also leave us a voice message toll-free at 1-866-XPLORIT. That's 1-866-975-6748. Next time, in episode 59 of Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Brooke McNamara from Case Western Reserve University. She'll discuss her attempt to replicate a seminal study from the 1990s, which led to the mantra popularized by Malcolm Gladwell that 10,000 hours of deliberate practice is necessary to become an expert performer. The violinist rated practice alone is more relevant to improvement on the violin than teacher design practice, which I thought was interesting. And there was a significant difference in that, but there was not a significant difference in the amount of variance explained by either practice alone or teacher design practice. In both cases, it was roughly 25% of the variance. We hope that you will join us again 